This is Greg Olson, and I'm thrilled to introduce my new podcast, TE1. TE1 will chronicle a 60-year evolution of the tight end position, from its origins as an obscure, overlooked blocking role to the versatile superstar position that it is today. I'll explore the evolution of the position through conversations with some of the all-time game-changing tight ends. And just like the incredible tight ends we sit down with on my new show, the Chevy Silverado is in a league of its own. This truck is all about grit, strength, and dependability. The same attributes it takes to be a tight end. And what's up, everybody? Welcome to episode 37 of Land Parties, brought to you by the Las Vegas Review Journal. This episode is sponsored by Bet Online. I am your host, Lucas Agan. Joining me, as always, is Ryan Smith. Ryan, how are you? Doing well, my friend. Uh, another chill week. I actually got a chance to play uh, a game that I hadn't played before called uh, Rebel Galaxy uh, Outlaws. That was a lot of fun. Been playing a lot of Among Us uh, with friends, which I know a lot of people are. That game is is a lot of fun. And then grinding on uh, Avengers. You know, I'm, I'm getting closer closer to Endgame. I think Max is around 140 or something like that. And I'm at... Uh, 73 i want to say so we're we're slowly grinding away but it's been uh been pretty good how about yourself my friend uh my weekend was good just grinding avengers and playing a lot of fall guys and trying not to rage at it because i'm terrible at it but it's still a lot of fun but (laughs) enough about that we have a killer lineup here with us today to talk esports and the state of the industry joining us is a co-founder of 8-Bit Esports, Milo Ocampo, brand expert, Peter Lamb, and esports reporter and staff writer at Esports Talk, Justin Steiner. Hi, guys. How are you guys doing? We're good. I I, I didn't want to just... <laughs> everybody, yeah, all of us answer each at other, the same so. time. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm good. I'm good. Thank you for asking. Doing well. Doing well. Perfect. We are excited to get into that. We just wanted to touch on a couple quick topics before we get into the meat and potatoes. Ryan, do you want to kick us off? Yeah, so we know that next weekend is going to be uh, the Overwatch League's championship uh, grand finales bracket, and I am pretty pumped for this. Uh, this is going to be this is going to be. I mean, again, this is the whole season finally coming to fruition. We've got Seoul Dynasty, San Francisco Shock, Philadelphia Fusion, and the Shanghai Dragons. Uh, I think some of these at the beginning of the season uh, we call we were very much we know that Philly was strong throughout uh soul dynasty always solid i think shanghai uh has got a solid team as well i'm excited i am pumped uh to check out the actions what are your guys thoughts on this i think this is shanghai's year um they've come a long long way from being winless in season one um i think that you know they've put together a really solid roster you know after spending season two kind of rebuilding and uh yeah uh they've definitely benefited from i guess being able to just play in their region and uh really dominate this year thanks to covid um you know kind of disappointed the finals aren't going to be you know um like live and in person um i guess they didn't feel safe doing it on land even though lee legends did but oh well uh it should be a good, good show regardless yeah, and I thought too because I know that there were some rumblings about them possibly, you know, creating a bubble and then playing inside this bubble. I, you know, I, I think it, it, and you would have to obviously have one in NA, and then I'm guessing one over uh, in the Asian region as well. I, I definitely think that's something that's a lot more viable, especially within esports. Uh, and just you know, I, I felt like things were really building, starting to get people into uh, into buildings and and really getting this team hype. It did. Kind kind of put a little bit of a stint on uh, I feel like it's growth not being able to be live and have these big spectacles and events so you know I mean again this is this is always exciting because it's a, it's the culmination of a season but this has been such a such a weird season you had to stop where you know the, the, the lockdowns really started hitting everything kind of grinded to a halt and I really felt like that kind of killed the momentum in the season for a lot of people uh, that were watching I know I'm having a hard time uh, just you know kind of getting back into it 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Um, COVID definitely put a hamper on Overwatch's league season. It also doesn't help that they're on YouTube now. Uh, that a lot of people that kind of started watching the league on Twitch just sort of lost track of it. Um, I know even for me, even as a reporter, like it's hard for me to even like keep track of what's going on Overwatch League anymore just because it's not in front of me. It's not in front of my face. Like if I'm not if I'm not paying attention to the schedule, like I, I just miss matches and I'm just like, wait. So, you know. Uh not ideal. Um I don't think the league is too happy with the way viewership's at. I mean, I know earlier in the season they commented on the low viewership and that they were trying to work with YouTube on getting things like drops and stuff like that back enabled. Uh, honestly, the whole deal with YouTube feels a little bit premature, and they, just like every other deal that they've done with esports leagues, it just hasn't really panned out. I mean, I hope Activision Blizzard got a lot of money for that because uh, they certainly aren't making up for it in ad revenue. Well, that was, dude, that, that was such a mind boggling move to me because you were literally coming off the most used live streaming platform from Twitch. They had the, the, the drops, which people alone, you had viewership numbers just because they were getting, they were being incentivized uh, to go and watch. And, you know, th- th- that's exactly how I feel. They must have been cut like a fat check uh, because it didn't make sense to go from, that over to YouTube. Yes, I feel that YouTube gaming and live streaming over there is definitely growing and and on that growth path. But why would you do that when you're already at that high level? Because for me, it's hard. Like I was more apt to watch it on Twitch than I have been on YouTube. I same with me. I, I forget that there's even matches going on, and there's just not that. There's it's just different. You know what I mean? It's like I, it's like it, the 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 platforms are are different and it feels different, especially as you're coming in as a community uh, community member. Uh, it's just different. It just it's just not there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it doesn't help that like you had things like the all access pass in season two. Uh, people kind of got used to being able to see player POVs and like all these extra features that Twitch added and. Um, yeah, I mean, just as a fan, like not even speaking as a reporter, just as a fan, the fan experience just hasn't been there. Um, you know, I think I feel like it basically it's like just sucking all the air out of the room. Kind of. It's like people were really excited. And then all of a sudden it's just it's gone. Yeah. And like, um, you know, they're having to kind of rebuild from scratch. Uh, <laughs> I know a lot of team owners aren't happy uh, with with it. So, um, <laughs> like I said, uh you know, I know the league needs a media deal and needs that revenue coming in, but like Twitch probably wasn't willing to pay the ninety million over two years again. Uh, but uh, at what cost? That's my that's my question. I uh, I have something to ask for the live viewership. What's the numbers usually on average? Uh, like the regular season numbers, at least they were pretty low. Like you're talking like maybe mid thirty thousands. If you're lucky, uh, like during the regular season, and maybe it's gotten better during playoffs. I haven't really been looking, but um, you know, it's it hasn't yeah. been great. Call of Duty League seems to be outperforming it like vastly, just because I feel like the Call of Duty audience is on YouTube. They're not really on Twitch anyway. So, uh, but Overwatch was, and uh, yeah, yeah, and I think they're trying to do the same thing. I just checked out the Overwatch League's YouTube channel. And so for the last match that was just streamed, it has 271k views on it. You know, I don't know what the retention rate on it is, but the views is definitely a lot higher than you would have live. So maybe they know that the live numbers aren't that great. And they might be banking on creating a bunch of shoulder content because there is a lot of shoulder content on here. And for those of you who don't know what that is, it's basically any side content that supplements the live... um, live games that's not really anything to do with what it is so it could be like player interviews and whatnot so they're putting out a lot of that extra side content for people to enjoy and the the views are pretty good on it too so i'm wondering if that's their strategy if they know they can't capitalize on the live stream numbers those are but i mean again i think that then becomes a direct you know into direct contention with the owners and these people that want that live you know, they want the live element. The, the excitement for them is the, the the live elements of it, not the back end, then getting the views where, you know what I mean? So it's going to be interesting to see how they balance that out and moving forward. Do they stick with YouTube? Do they stick? Because obviously they they 
they have some sort of plan in place, uh, you know, for moving over there and whatnot. So to see them executed and what that bigger picture looks like, maybe they do stick with it or maybe they look, they go back to Twitch and say, hey, you know, we're willing to take a pay cut to be able to get back on the platform. Yeah, I think this is all about managing expectations and trying to figure out exactly what the teams or the organizations are looking for. Because um, I would have to assume brand awareness is one of them. And so if you have content that lives on YouTube, that's evergreen, um, that's shorter form and keeps people's attention and really highlights the players outside of the game, it could be it could do really, really well for the brands of the players and the teams. But then again, like I said, that's just speculation because I don't know exactly what they're looking for. Right. Yeah, of course. Lucas, what are your thoughts on it? What do, who do you who do you have on this? You're going to be watching this uh, next weekend. I'm going to make it a point to actually watch these. This is going down October 8th through the 10th. I believe the uh, uh, first round is the 8th. Uh, second round is a double elimination here in the grand finals. And then the last round happening on the 10th. Yeah, you know, I, I guess to start, I agree with you guys. It's it's something that I have to to make a point to watch. I have to plan ahead and remind myself to watch it. Whereas before I could, it was in your face more. It was easier to come across it. Uh, you know, we talked about this before, um, and I'm, I'm going to agree with Dustin here that it, it seems like, on paper, this should be Shanghai's year. Uh, they were my pick uh, when we made predictions here a little bit ago, uh, so I'm going to stick with it. I, I, I just, I just think that it should be their year. I think they're going to get it done. Um, I'm looking forward to some exciting matches, though. Yeah, it's going to be dope. Uh, I'm going to throw it out for Philly. I got, my, I got my money on Philly, so that's where, that's where I'm at. Uh, but yeah, no, we'll we'll see. It should be an exciting time. Again, that's going to happen uh, here next weekend. I wanted to shift gears real quickly, guys, because I I think this news is absolutely explosive. Uh, I don't know. I felt like this kind of was a sleeper, uh, but Amazon announced their Luna Cloud Gaming service. And boy, oh boy, uh, they were able to get around the elusive uh, Apple, <laughs> uh, their terms of service issues that other uh, other developers have run into, uh, which is kind of crazy to me uh, that they're able to do it. This thing is going to be available on basically any device, Android devices, uh, PC. It'll also be on Fire TV uh, because it's Amazon and then uh, your iOS devices as well. Now they're able to get around the iOS devices uh, by by using a web app. So basically, their game, their their cloud service will be on a web app, which you can then on your phone uh, download that and you know make it a button and all that stuff. What's crazy to me is that this technology has been here to the, the this this long. It's been here. They said uh, the past like ten years. And uh, I don't know why no other developers or Microsoft or, or Google haven't implemented this to get around um, the issues that they're seeing now, the, the legal issues that they're seeing. I see. I feel like that's kind of weird, but I feel like this is probably right now anyway, with it being on iOS devices, the most plausible one that I've seen. It's going to be it's going to run for about five ninety nine a month. They've, I believe they are signing on with Ubisoft. So we'll see Ubisoft games on there. Uh, they've got, they're, they're saying that they'll have at least a hundred games on there. I think this is built kind of along the lines of like a stadia. I think it's kind of, uh, what is modeled more around, but this is super exciting. I, I feel like again, everyone's trying to jump into this cloud gaming space and it's really, I've been kind of waiting to see which one is really going to be that. All right. This is the standard of uh cloud gaming. Yeah. I mean, it's going to be fun. Anytime you see, at least from an, uh, um, analyzing who will quote unquote win. Anytime you see a big company jump in it, it certainly spices things up and it'll certainly make things more interesting to watch. Um, I always worry that like it, it's to me, it, I just worry that it will become like the, the Netflix effect, right? Netflix mm -hmm. was great, but then as soon as you started getting Hulu and Disney Plus and now Apple TV Plus and all these, all of a sudden that cost starts to rise and you start to get content um, separated and, and service specific. So 
We'll see. We'll see. I mean, Amazon certainly has the brand name behind it, certainly has the money behind it to make this work if they can. Um, It'll be interesting to watch. uh, I'm interested to see how this all pans out uh, bigger picture. Well, I think this is super. I mean, this is really hitting an audience that a lot of people haven't been able to hit, which is those that can't necessarily afford a PC or a console. Uh, it'll give them an option to be able to play games. Say they have a fire a fire stick or something like that. You're telling me all I have to do is get a controller and now I have access to all these uh, amazing games and who knows what they're going to do with it. You know, again, I, I, I very much believe that this is uh, going to be the future of gaming uh, will be in the cloud and just kind of seeing these these little pieces coming together as far as within this space is super exciting. I, I think this is really cool. And, it, you know, it, it's weird, too. I mean, the, one of the, the biggest parts to me that stands out is with them using this web app. Why haven't the other companies gone this route? What are your guys' thoughts on that? I'm not really sure, honestly. Um, with I mean, maybe it could be a lag issue. It could be it could be any number of reasons that they just haven't done that. There, there were also it was there wasn't a necessity to either. Um, you know, they just said, "Oh yeah, we want we want to go with the App Store because everyone has App Store installed already." Like it's you know exposure for our games, that kind of thing. Um, you know they. Yeah, they had to pay the cut or whatever, but I think they chalked that up to, you know, losses made for exposure, exposing people to the game. But now that the game, like Fortnite, for example, is at critical mass, like they don't need it anymore. So they wanted to go their own way with it. Uh, it's possible that they use this technology now uh, if they see it working. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, that, that's my take on it anyway. Yeah, I'm kind of wondering if it's centered around data. I don't know exactly what the details are of how apps work versus web apps uh, and how much data you could collect, but potentially maybe you could collect more data off of an app from the app store than you can through uh, you know, a web browser, right? So that could be one of the things also. It's just my thoughts on it. There could be hesitancy too, because when um, Stadio was released, that actually didn't gain much traction. So it's really... Who can who can really define the space and set that standard first before other people jump on it because they don't really want to throw money into research and development into something that isn't really necessary right now. But yeah, it could be the future. Yeah, I, I think I think um, Milo's right. I think Amazon is probably the one that's most likely to take this. So I did use NVIDIA. Um, I have an NVIDIA Shield downstairs and I have used its cloud service for a couple of months just to try it out and see what it's like. It's really fun, but not everyone has an NVIDIA Shield. Um, and then from the Stadia side of things, you got to have like a Chromecast um, and you also got to, you know, you got to kind of already be in the Google ecosystem um, in one way or another. And with Amazon, well, everyone has Prime. Everyone, a lot of people have Prime. A lot of people have Fire Sticks. A lot of people have way more Echoes than they do Google Homes. Um, I, I know at least. So people are way more familiar with the Amazon ecosystem. Plus, they have Twitch. They have the back end to support servers like this with AWS. So I think they have all the tools that's needed to make this thing a huge success. Especially since they're also, you know, uh, you can see with Amazon Game Studios, they're starting to expand more into gaming. I think this is definitely their avenue to take if they play their cards right and make sure that they are supporting the the target audience, which is definitely the casual gamers. I agree 100%. This is theirs to uh, to mess up because they've got all the infrastructure stuff. They're talking about it having uh, Twitch integration as well. Uh, the, the remote is or the controller is uh, Alexa enabled. I mean, they've got everything there for, I, I feel like, you know, just speaking on what Milo said real quick with Google, uh, Google always felt, it, it felt like it was a rushed endeavor because they knew there was going to be people that were already working and developing cloud, uh, uh, cloud gaming services and things like that. There, Stadia should never have come out. It shouldn't have come out. It's still in beta right now. Uh, and, and I tried it for a little bit. And literally, because I'm not in that Google ecosystem, I could only play it on my PC. Now, why would I use the service on my PC when I could just play my PC? You know what I'm saying? So, like, it never worked for me. I didn't like that that service. Like, I, it, it's just upsetting. It, it, I don't know why it was so upsetting to me. It was just upsetting the fact that 
they went in so haphazardly into that space, you know, just trying to be, I, I felt like it was rushed and they just wanted to be the first ones to come out with it. Uh, it was really disappointing on my end. GeForce Now, I felt like they were really, really at a good place until you started having developers back out once it, once it went out of beta and they didn't reach any kind of contract agreements with these uh, with these gaming developers and, and publishers and whatnot. And that kind of fell apart a little bit. You had people pulling these these major games and that's what was so you know, lucrative about GeForce now was the fact that, hey, if you own it on Steam or wherever you own it at, you can play it. You know, it's going to, you know, $4.99 and you can play your games wherever. That's really what we want, right? I want to be able to play my games wherever I want to play my games. Don't, don't, you know, don't get, you know, don't make me use this stuff. Just let me play my games. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, you're right, you know, but the thing is like, you got to own the game first. That's, that's the thing. Um, what Amazon is doing or what Stadia was trying to do and a bunch of these other services is, you know, like we could call it the Netflix of video games. And so I don't have to commit $60 to a game and maybe, you know, even more as time goes on to, to maybe try out a game that I don't like it and I might have to go through the whole return process. Whereas like there's new games that are updating in the library every single month or, or so, however long it takes. I could keep on trying the games that I like and then the ones that I don't like, I don't have to feel bad about it because I'm paying monthly for a service to try out a bunch of different games. Exactly. I think you're, that is, that is absolutely spot on. That is the big difference for me as far as within that space. It makes a huge difference. Yeah, that's why you see Microsoft doing it. They pushed out Xbox Game Pass so hard. And then after, now that they own um, ZeniMax, like there's going to be a war of online web-based services um, for for video games, you know? So you got Microsoft doing their thing. And then now you have Amazon doing that too. It's only a matter of time before maybe Steam or Epic Games might start looking at um, doing something like that too. And I know PlayStation definitely has to step into the ring to compete with all of these online-based subscription services. I agree 100%. I mean, they, they kind of already did with PlayStation Now, but like it's not Now really, is not good, though. <laughs> it's not as good. Yeah, no, it, it's, it, yeah it, it's basically like, yeah, like, like Hulu or compared to Netflix or whatever. People are just like, you know what? It's, it's, just, it's there, but I don't like using it. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know what? Let's take a quick commercial break, guys, and we'll come back and we will do some jibber jabbing. We'll be right back, guys. You've counted on restaurants. Now they're counting on you. And while their dining rooms may be closed, they're still open for delivery with DoorDash. DoorDash is the app that brings you the food you're craving right to your door. Ordering is easy. Open the DoorDash app, choose what you want to eat, and your food will be left safely outside your door with the new contactless delivery drop-off setting. Choose from your favorite national restaurants like Chipotle, Wendy's, and the Cheesecake Factory. Many of your local favorite restaurants are still open for delivery too. Just open the DoorDash app, select your favorite local spot, and your food is on its way. Right now, our listeners can get $5 off and zero delivery fees on their first order of $15 or more when you download the DoorDash app and enter the promo code BLUEWIRE. That's $5 off your order and zero delivery fees when you download the DoorDash app in the App Store and enter the code BLUEWIRE. Don't forget, that's code BLUEWIRE for $5 off your first order with DoorDash. Sundays, Sundays, Sundays are coming back in the NFL. With NFLSundayTicket.tv, you can stream every live, out-of-market NFL game every Sunday afternoon on your favorite devices. Plus, Red Zone and DirecTV Fantasy Zone channels means you'll never miss your favorite teams or favorite players. No matter where you live, NFLSundayTicket.tv is your key to the most glorious Sundays ever. Use the promo code BLUEWIRE at checkout to get 15% off your subscription. Visit NFLSundayTicket.tv and use the promo code BLUEWIRE. And welcome back, guys. Thanks for listening to those short messages. And I am super excited to get into this discussion with you gentlemen here. We've seen esports 
have a quote unquote moment due to the pandemic. But I wanted to have you guys on because you guys are all experts in different areas and just discuss what's gone well, what hasn't gone well. And what what do you guys think of where esports is as an industry today, as opposed to where it was before the pandemic hit? Bilo, would you like to go first? Sure. I think esports is in a much, I don't want to say better, but esports is definitely in a better spot for attention because with sports going off the air, a lot more people had that competitive content need that had to get filled. So people started shifting their focus in esports, which is why there was an uptick in viewership over the, uh, the first few months. I can't really speak for how esports would have been if live events were still going on and we were on the same track. But my best bet would be that with all these new eyes on esports, when live events come back next year or whenever it's safe, there will be more of an interest and a much smaller barrier or a resistance to the idea of attending like such an event. I think Milo said it. You know, viewership definitely has increased. Uh, there are a lot more tournaments running around now, especially amateur tournaments that's created by streamers or by community members themselves since the pandemic has started because, uh, you know, we have websites like... Am I allowed to say the website name? I don't know. <laughs> Go for it. Okay, so, so yeah, we have websites like Smash.gg, uh, Challenge, and, you know, making it very accessible and easy for creators to run their own tournaments for their community. And now Twitch coming out with their um, with the announcement, I think it was like a couple of weeks ago, with their own service to help um, integrate the tournament bracket onto the, um, the Twitch platform. So it's it's about to get really really crowded and that leaves me to wonder whether that's a good thing or a bad thing um because it could go either way and it's just one of those things where on paper it could look like one or the other but you don't really know until you see it take action fully i think that largely things have gone well for esports um obviously uh a lot of organizers had to put their plans on hold uh for 2020 due to due to COVID, but I think we've kind of shifted gears pretty well um, to just do online events and, uh, you know, keep people entertained, uh, especially when sports weren't really around. Um, whether or not I think this is like a, a temporary, like, increase in, uh, in viewership and interest is, you know, it's kind of up in the air still. I mean, I think a lot of the, a lot of the sports that, like, try to do esports as a filler like NASCAR and like racing and stuff like that. I think that's that viewership's going to go away. Um, but I think that people that actually got into esports itself uh, probably it, they might stick around a little bit um, and you know kind of check things out. Um, you know, I I do think that uh, you know a lot of organizers were able to save money by this year by doing online events. They cut a lot of cost. So they probably didn't see as big of a hit as a lot of interest, industries did from from COVID and the shutdown. Um, but I do think that you know we did lose some momentum in live live viewership, like attendance and stuff like that. So it, it might end up just being you know kind of balancing out in the end, and uh, you know we'll be able to get back on track in twenty twenty one. I think. What is the key to? building off of the momentum with viewership and, and, and getting viewers to stick around long-term rather than just, just be kind of a, a more temporary bl uh, blip because of COVID. Yeah. That's what I was, um, I, I wanted to mention because I just thought of it while Dustin was talking. It's, it, this is a really big opportunity, um, to overcome a challenge. And the challenge is how do we innovate from what we were doing before the pandemic for online events, right? Because before online events were the way they were, they were cool, they were stable because we had the offset of live events too. And so if you had both, then they're fine. Nothing really needed to change all too much. But now everything is online. Everything starts feeling the same. You could get, you know, esports fatigue um, and there's just too many tournaments to watch. And sometimes they feel a little lackluster because of, of the, 
you know, we're starting to realize all of the pain points that exist that we didn't see before now that everything is online. So it's like, how do we innovate on these things? How do we keep viewers engaged? How do we really make this experience, this online experience very special for people watching at home, which is a hard thing if you don't have any um, activations that people are used to that, you know, it's like when you're live you get to do the meet and greets, you could do the signings, you could, you know, meet other players, but now it's online and that's that's a big challenge. So I, I think that the problem with that is that people are just going to kind of go back to business as usual as soon as the pandemic ends and we're able to do live events again. Like you already have ESL like saying they're going to launch live events again in December. Uh, the motivation for these companies to innovate and like really put in the work, it, it won't be there once the pandemic ends. Um, I, I feel like a lot of these, you know, companies were just doing online as a stopgap. Uh, they should have been innovating and they should have been coming up with ways to, to do things. But I think, uh, and I was having this discussion with my roommate the other night, like the reason a lot of these companies that like were like, oh, yeah, that's a great idea for the pandemic. Right. But the problem is no one knows when the pandemic is going to end. So it's like people are like, well, why didn't why put in the work if it's going to end two weeks from now? Right. Like they, they, mm -hmm. there's just no way to know when it's going to end. It's not going to end two weeks from now, obviously. But like, you know, that's just the mentality that a lot of these people have. Um, so, I mean, I, I hate to be pessimist here, but uh, people are lazy and they're going to go back to doing the things that, you know, they know how to do and uh, that work um, when the pandemic ends. Um, now, I, I do think that it's important that someone does the work. I just don't know who it's going to be. Yeah, I think that's the amazing thing though, right? Because all these really big companies are already so used to doing live events and they're only thinking of online events as filler, just like, oh, we'll do this for now while you know we wait out the pandemic. Someone who really, really cares and understands the online space will come and take over. And so by the time the pandemic is over, whenever that is, they'll come out of this way stronger. And then that's when we could see them as industry leaders of online tournaments. And so they're taking advantage of um, you know the quote unquote laziness of other companies who don't really want to take a chance at, at at making this something much more than it is now so it's a it's a big opportunity i think and and you know you're absolutely right some companies aren't taking it as seriously as they should but that's kind of you know priorities right for each company is different yeah i, I agree and you know i want to know i want to ask you guys how do you think because i mean i i know I, I always, I've always had a hard time, like, really diving deep into esports. What do you think, you know, especially with the situation that's going on right now, how do, do these teams and these owners and these organizations reach these more casual gamers or people that might not, you know, be as, as versed in the knowledge of uh, esports? They ask. So there's an opportunity right now. To, to really connect with the grassroots communities, which is, you know, honestly where I come from. But even before the pandemic, there was already an infrastructural shift with all the big names. So um, ESL was negotiating a buyout. Uh, CSL got bought out. And all of these, like, th there's a lot of acquisitions going on right now. So with these big organizations and these big teams, with the online communities, people that have mastered the space, like Peter said, we're honestly collegiate organizers, people that are masters of their niche. The, and um, the only real way to, I guess, survive is to tap into that community and have unison or unity within everyone. You know, I have a question to put to you, you guys. I look at, at some of traditional sports, right? If you want to get into basketball, they can point you to watch the NCAA or the NBA, right? If you want to get into football, they'll point you to the NFL. When somebody comes to you and says, I want to try and get into esports, I want to start to watch it. And this was a, a, a actually a question we also got on social media uh, from Neil on Facebook. What is a good entry point and how do you overcome that barrier? Because when you say esports, it encompasses a lot and there's not a clear answer I don't think out there of, of to point somebody go, you want to get into esports? look there. How would you guys tell somebody to start? Well, I mean, I would ask them what, what games they like to play, what sort of games they like to play. Um, they like to play shooters. I might point them to a CSGO tournament, for example. 
Uh, if they like to play fighting games, I'd be like, oh, go watch, you know, Dragon Ball or Street Fighter. You know, it, it really just depends on what they're into. Um, but just like as as like an introduction to the concept of esports, like competitive gaming, like what it is, I'd probably send them like one of the many documentaries that, that have been made. Um, I think they had a um, what's that series called on Netflix? Um, it was like Esports Explained, I think. Uh, where they, oh, where they, yeah, yeah, where where they where they did, um, they went into LCS, I think, and like you know, interviewed players and stuff, and kind of explained the concept of esports, and like they explained at least how League of Legends esports was formed, and like all that kind of stuff, and they sort of uh, at least give people an idea of like, oh, okay, you can get paid to play video games, you can, you know, it, it is a competitive thing that people watch on Twitch, so you get the idea that like you can go watch competitive video gaming and then you, from there you just go, okay, well, what are you into? And then just kind of go from there. Um, I do think that broadcasters could do a much better job of bringing in new viewers and like kind of making them feel welcome rather than just catering to the hardcore fans. But I mean, that's a whole another ball of wax really. Really the entry point right now is identify what game you like playing and which genre you really like and find your community. Because from personal knowledge, I know a lot of high school programs are starting to pop up and there's starting to be a lot of middle school programs that are starting to pop up. So esports communities are starting to become more accessible and it's, it's up to the organizers and up to industry leaders to really show the value in reaching out and being part of that community, whether it be introductions to more games, introductions to friends, a pathway to becoming a better player, a pathway to becoming pro or making it a career. There's, there's a lot, but I think the starting point is figuring out what game you like and is this a community I want to be a part of? Because it's also 100% okay to want to be in esports and just play with your friends. Yeah, I think I'm going to take the other angle, the other approach. I think for young people who want to get into esports, it's going to be somewhat natural. Uh, because if you're young, you're going to be most likely in school, you're going to be in clubs, you have a lot of friends that end up do playing the same game. So you're you're going to be introduced one way or another. I don't think that's, um, you know, that's a challenge right there for for younger folks. Uh, for, for people who are a little bit older and who aren't familiar with esports as much but want to get into it, uh, say my cousins who are are kind of like in their 30s right now who didn't really you know grow up with competitive video games although they did play a little bit of it i think the 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 direction i would point them to is video games that have a um that are very viewer friendly. So for example, I would point them towards fighting games because it's a very easy concept of two people fighting each other and you could see one life bar, you kind of understand what's going on. Maybe not Marvel because that's really complicated or Dragon Ball, but like Tekken or Street Fighter, something that's more grounded, you could definitely get into that. You know what's going on, especially since those are very legacy um, IPs. People have grown up with Tekken since the 90s and same thing with Street Fighter uh, or something that's a little bit more modern, but still has a very um, grounded understanding of like what actually happens in our real world is Rocket League. It's, you know, soccer with cars and that's very easy to get into, very easy to understand. So I think those would be the type of games that people could get into esports with and find out a little bit more about what it's about and start exploring from there once they um, kind of understand the scope and the passion that the community has for each game. Mm -hmm. I'd recommend Counter-Strike too, because um, it's really easy to see who's alive, who's dead. You're just, I mean, it's pretty simple, right? Like, Yeah, yeah, Counter-Strike. You're just kind of de you're defusing a bomb or killing the enemy team. That's that's it. That's the whole goal of the game. So, um, I mean, the economy and all that stuff is, you know, it's there if you want it, but you don't need to really pay too much attention to it. It's just, you know, basically, if you're a new viewer, you come in, you're like, oh, that was a that was an impressive shot. I've played a shooter before, so yeah, it's pretty uh, pretty straightforward. Yeah, and, and circling back on what Milo and Peter said, we actually, uh, Jennifer from Facebook asked, is it viable for high schools to begin forming teams for esports based on the students' wants for it? And how can it be a good or bad thing for their futures? I'll start with the bad. The bad thing is having them hinge on esports as their one and done and not setting up safety nets. There's there could there's easily a misunderstanding 
um, when it comes to that because the way to honestly think about it is not a lot of people get into the NBA. Not a lot of people get into the NFL. Not a lot of people become esports pros. But that doesn't uh, so so that actually doesn't mean that you know you shouldn't chase after your dreams because there's still a lot of places to get you know or have a career within esports. But just don't really get hooked onto the idea that you're going to become a pro. So that's the bad. The good. It's something that we spend our time doing anyway. It's something that now has scholarships and now has some semblance of an infrastructure. So it's it's safer, but it's still not equal or fair. There's still that that stigma with working through administration, all the bureaucracy. There's still the equipment and technological needs that a lot of schools do not have that needs to be addressed. But in the end, it, it just boils down to the, the simple fact of support your child and their outlets and their interests, but also keep them on you know a more realistic level of understanding, which is set up your safety nets. You know, if I can touch on something that, that you guys mentioned, and when you talked about finding the, the genre of games that you like as kind of your entry point, I think what I've seen is people lumping a very large amount of games into this esports bucket. Whether or not they should be there is debatable. Uh, sometimes I, I really do think not. Um, but a, a question we got, and I'm going to add a little bit to this from Happy Hour Gaming on Twitter, is what are your thoughts on the broadening of the types of games that people call an esport? And is there a danger in your guys' minds of making this bucket too broad for games that we're calling esports? I think that it's kind of becoming a marketing buzzword from a lot of developers and it shouldn't be esports is it's a very specific thing um that i don't think mobile games that are largely casual like should be calling themselves esports unless they are designed to be competitive um like for example vainglory was i i just i i don't think that it's really necessary for the, you know, for even if it has a competitive aspect to it, for the, for it to be an esport, without there being some kind of, I don't know, I don't want to say like promise of developer support, things like that, where um, you know most esports have at this point. Um, the danger there is that it it sort of. I want to say it sort of cheapens the word. It also kind of distorts the view of what esports is and makes the industry look a lot bigger than it is. Esports as a whole has a tendency to uh, pull numbers that aren't really representative of the industry in the first place and uses gaming's, like the wider gaming category, as like a backdrop to esports and like sort of associates those numbers together and draws investment that it shouldn't yet i don't think but uh yeah <laughs> yeah i'm a little bit more casual about the term um but i do hear your concerns about esports being used in a way to inflate numbers that aren't there for uh for investors i've heard of that happening a lot so that is a a concern and something that you know should be addressed somehow uh but for me esports like it's just I knew what competitive games were before esports was even like the word for it, right? It was just competitive video games. So for me, I think it's okay to consider almost anything in esports as long as the game itself can be played competitively or wants to be co played competitively by a community of people. That's kind of like if you want to just talk about Smash, that's Smash is a party game. It was a party game for a long time until people started finding uh, a competitive aspect to it, and then a community formed around it. You know, a lot of the games earlier in the seven, uh, not in the seventies, but like in the early nineties, <laughs> uh, like like Quake. I mean, you know, they were just they were just fun, right? Quake and Halo. Um, you know, going to earlier two thousands, like they were just games to play for fun. I mean, obviously, it did have a competitive aspect to it. But people became hyper competitive with it. And as long as there's a community around it to run tournaments, to do competitions, to do little things here and there, eventually, if it grows big enough to be um, like a tier, you know, three, tier two esports, maybe even tier one, uh, if, the, if the game has, you know, enough fans and the audience and developer support, then it can make it there. Um, but 
you know, that's how I see it. Esports is in different tiers, right? And so you could be in the grassroots tier forever where you have very niche games that are kind of considered esports um, to a broader audience. And maybe it doesn't have, uh, you know, huge tournament prize pools or everything, but has a very dedicated community. And you could still consider that an esports if you like. And my whole stance is it, it is a buzzword for sure. But what developers are now realizing, or at least I hope they're realizing with the success of Fall Guys and Among Us, is that not every game in development meant for the masses needs to be an eSport. So, yeah. So, hopefully that brings a shift because, honestly, after playing so many eSports over the last few years, I really enjoy Among Us and Fall Guys. It's a really nice breath of fresh air. Yeah, I was, I was going to circle back to that if you, if you didn't. Like, it, that's... I think the biggest thing that actually kills a competitive title in development is for the developer to say, this is going to be the next big eSport. Like it just, it just, it just sucks any excitement out of it. Like immediately the community has to form around it first. Then like when you see the community forming, that's when you go, okay, Hey, here's this eSports deck that we had when we made, we made when the game was in development. Now we're going to launch that. Like, don't say like before it launches, like, yeah, we're going to have eSports. It's going to be amazing. Like, it's not. It's not necessary. There's no reason. Esports should be the strategy, not the identity. Mm-hmm. Make a fun game first. Honestly, make a fun game first that a lot of people can enjoy, and then that's your data right there, right? Because you see how people are playing it competitively. If they, if they, if it does end up naturally going that direction, and you're like, oh, this is how we could plan. Like Milo said, the strategy around how we're going to build the esports and how we're going to balance the game after seeing how users interact with it. You know, Peter, you are our branding guy here on the on the between the, the group of us. Do you worry that too many games trying to use esports as a buzzword would dilute the significance of it? Like, is that is that a worry to you that would weaken the overall value of esports um, in in the general public's eye? Mm, I don't think so. I I mean, we could definitely. Man, this is going to be a really broad example. But for example, uh, you could say restaurants, right? There are a lot of really good restaurants and there are really a lot of really bad restaurants. Um, fast food chains even consider themselves restaurants. And, you know, that's kind of like debatable depending on who you're talking to. Uh, but for example, like if if a developer ends up creating a game and like, this is an esports title, right? And there's no community around it and the game really doesn't you know, kick off and um, there's no teams building for it, then they could call it an esports all they want. It's just, it, it's not it. it. It's not, right? It's like how I say what branding is. It's what other people say you are. And if you say you're this thing, if you're self-proclaiming yourself to be this one thing, but nobody thinks you are, then you're not. And so people can say, developers can say their game is built for esports all they want, but if people aren't excited about it, if people aren't going to play it, um, then we don't really have to worry about it diluting the space because everyone else who's inside the space already knows uh, what the real esports titles are. And people who are coming into the space who wants to learn more about it will hear about the Counter-Strike, the Valorants, the League of Legends, the Dota 2s, um, before they even hear about this game that, that no one really wants to play. They won't even reach that. Yeah, and I think that's what Riot did so well, too, with their marketing was building that community out before Valorant came out. So then right when, you know, and then there was the Twitch drops that they utilized as well. Uh, I, I felt like they did a really good job of because they instantly jumped jumped in with that mentality in mind. I mean, the game is basically an Overwatch CSGO mashup. Uh, you know, at least that's how I felt about it. But like they I, I felt like they did a pretty good job of kind of building out that community right before it came out. And then when it did eventually come out, uh, you know, everything was right, you know, already there. And they kind of ha- already have that infrastructure and the the game, you know, people people like it enough uh, to where I, I think it could, you know, I mean, it's built for esports. That's what I see when I see esports. But at the same time, kind of like what you guys are saying as well, it's more about, you know what I mean? Like this community building around the game and then, you know, it kind of flourishing it and growing from there. I, I love Mario Kart. Uh, for me, you know, I wouldn't necessarily consider it an esport, but you know, for me, it, it can be very, very competitive uh, in that space. And it's just like BRs, right? Not all BRs are going to end up being esports. I've seen so many BRs come out that tried to be esports, and uh, no one really remembers 
what what those game titles are uh you know i think the only big brs that i've personally worked with is PUBG, but then they missed their chance and so it's not as big as it was supposed to be i i believe when it was like super popping in 2016 uh apex was super huge too for a while but then now it's kind of like calmed down a little bit and i think it's more of a niche title uh fortnite is probably the only uh battle royale game that people really identify esports with at least in the general sense and to further support Peter's point, the term sports isn't really diluted if you consider that darts, cornhole, bowling, chess, <laughs> and billiards are all shown on ESPN. I don't think the, the term sports is diluted. It, it all just comes down to whatever, whatever you want to call it. If it's competitive, if it's casual, we're, we're, we're competing in a video game. So... Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Check out the subreddit, the Ocho, if you want to see some really weird, competitive, <laughs> like physical sports. Yeah. There is there is some really amazing things. Like they're playing volleyball, like only with their feet. It's crazy. What what are some things that you've seen occur in esports that you think needs to be addressed long term? That that's maybe a threat's not the right way to put it but but concerns that need to be addressed long term for viability and increased um just just overall increase in popularity and and overall health for the for the industry uh i think that conflating streaming with esports is a mistake i think that just because twitch viewership is up doesn't mean esports viewership is up i think that's a that's a big thing that a lot of media outlets don't get right uh and i think it, it makes the industry look a lot bigger than it is um you know it makes investors think that they're going to make a lot of money right away when that's really not the case like we're not quite at that critical mass level yet um i think that that definitely needs to be addressed sooner than later um but i mean I think some players are being overpaid way, way too much money in, in games that they shouldn't be. It's there's there's a lot of little problems like that or some bigger than others, but uh, that just need to be kind of nipped in the bud. But I mean, we're going the right direction. It's certainly a lot better than it was in, you know, say 2010. But it's uh, still, you know, we're still early days. I mean, really, we're in an industry that really didn't take off until Twitch started booming. So, I mean, you know, it's kind of learning as we go sort of thing. I say it's normalized listening to industry experts that are in their early 20s. Because people, and, and you know, this is me speaking from personal experience. There's a huge push right now for collegiate organizations to partner up with more established um, organizations like I am leagues, and that's not really necessary because the industry leaders and the grassroots leaders right now that are learning and collaborating with each other are fully capable of organizing something big themselves. They just need the support, and just having that extra friction point and adding that extra layer of necessary communication just makes the entire process more difficult. And you come or and you produce a product that is not anywhere close to what it could have been. Uh, jumping off of that, um, stop hiring sports executives to run esports leagues, please. <laughs> For the love of God, please stop. Activision Blizzard, please. I'm calling you out. Stop it. <laughs> it's not. It's not necessary. Just fuck. Just use the esports experts that are here. Yeah, I'm gonna jump on. I'm, I'm gonna jump on that. Uh, like. You really have to listen to your audience and do stuff for them because at the end of the day, it's the hardcore audience that really cares about your game, that really cares about your competitive scene and the community um, that will support you all the way to the end. But if you keep on trying to create a product or at least create things that that push the product more towards a general audience, towards people who don't really watch competitive video games, um, then, then you're going to fail because it feels like you're not listening to your audience at all who's asking for these certain things to help make your game better it's almost as if like way back in not, i wouldn't say way back in the day but i guess in esports years it feels that way um, where everyone was trying to make esports more like t for tv 
you know. And then we started to realize slowly, like, yo, we don't need to be on TV. We have our own platforms. We have our own online communities. That's what makes us special. That's what makes us us. So we don't need to push it in front of people who don't really even care about competitive video gaming, uh, who doesn't even care about just gaming in general. That's not that's not their lives. Um, our lives is surrounded by this. By this, and so if developers um, and publishers or tournament organizers start focusing more on what their core target audience needs, they'll become way, way more successful than they ever thought they would have been. And I think that's where you get a lot of friction is this business side and the community and the community side sitting here and they don't know how to properly balance the two you're seeing in a lot of bigger companies i mean they're throwing a ton of money at this and then they completely miss the mark because they don't understand the community whatsoever they're not pandering anything to the community whatsoever they're trying to do it in a more generalized sense hey we've invested this amount of money we need to make x amount of dollars back uh which it's completely you know there's nothing more off-putting as a gamer than to see more of this business side creeping deeper and deeper into the core of the community and game gaming. Yeah. And, and so what they're doing is they're focusing too much on the short-term games rather than the long-term ones. It takes League of Legends 10 years to build itself into what it is today. It didn't, it didn't happen within a year or two or three, even like the first three years were still kind of rough for League of Legends in terms of their esports, right? And so they built the game first and they listened to the community and they really formed a culture a culture around this. And that's when they started building up stuff like KDA and their other, um, you know, their other music groups. And then now they have like an anime coming out. They have comic books. They have, they're building the lore and the world and the universe around their game. Once they realize, um, what their audience likes, but that takes a super long time. And the, the returns, you're not going to make the ROI within the first couple of years. You're going to have to take a bunch of losses before you get there. And so the business uh, mindset needs to shift from short-term gains into investing in the space very, very long-term. Mm-hmm. I mean, even with League of Legends, right? Like they're only just now really starting to monetize the game. Like now you're starting to see Mercedes skins and Mercedes stuff in the game, MasterCard, spot, uh, you know, now you're starting to see like sponsored banners in the, like on the rift this year. Like, but people are okay with it because it's a global sport now. It wasn't before. Whereas something like Overwatch League from day one, they had like 12, 13 sponsors. Everything was branded. Like, People were like, okay, well, this is just a cash grab. Like, yeah, it feels genuine. Mm -hmm. Exactly. But people are willing to celebrate that in League of Legends because it's like, oh, hey, like, look, we we had this thing for 10 years. It's like, okay, like, yeah, now they need to start monetizing it. And they welcome the sponsors with open arms. You know, just curious, Dustin, from your side of things, you get such a unique view being on the media side. Is there something that you see? on your side of things that, that you'd like to see improve uh, journalistically kind of overall and on how esports are covered? Um, I really wish that general reporters would talk to esports experts more. Like, you know, when you're reading about esports on CNN, you're reading about esports on Forbes or whatever, it's just this very, like... <sighs> I just feel like they were sent a marketing deck and they're like, okay, write a report on this. And then, you know, you get all the marketing speak, you get all the inflated numbers, you get all that stuff, but you don't get the perspective of actual players of, of, of the game. You might get a quote from a player here and there, but it's not, it's not the kind of like genuine reporting that a gaming fan wants to read. It's, it might be something you send your parents and go, Hey, look, look how big this is. But that's it, because you all you're sending them then is say, hey, look, Forbes is talking about thing at like, not this is an actual good article. Um, as far as like the industry itself, I wish that the industry itself understood the value of media a little bit more. Uh, they tend to, it's still very much a what do I get out of it immediately sort of thing rather than, you know, uh, brands understanding that they need to build partnerships with journalists and stuff, but it's, um, you know, that's a, that's a long-term thing. I don't, I don't think that's going to change overnight. Um, yeah, that's kind of what I'd like to see change.
Milo, given that you uh, are with 8-Bit and everything you've got going on there, do you see both those concerns or both sides of those things? Or is that something that you haven't encountered? Or is that something that um, you've seen kind of overall? My whole stance is that, and this is 100% anecdotal, because when I was interviewed for Business Insider about esports, the entire interview was not fun. It was so focused on numbers and so focused on really tailoring whatever narrative they were trying to um, to create to people that are looking at this from a business side, which I get, you know, I get it's business insider, but there's so much more. There's there, there are narratives, there are stories, the entire, just the entire emergence of this industry is an incredible story that needs to be covered. So yeah, I, I 100% agree with what Dustin is saying from like the media side, narratives need to be pushed out more I think to in order to to help normalize and legitimize um the social barriers within esports. And Peter, did you you know in terms of building your brand and setting that tone and setting that message, what what is do you see as the value in in kind of forming these partnerships with with the media and being able to push out these narratives uh, rather than focus on that immediacy of what am I getting out of this today. I think it's really important to understand where this industry came from, where the roots of esports began. And there is a lot of big business in here, but it's done in a way, it's focused in a way where I feel like a lot of people are turned off by it. I talk to a lot of students and they don't really like the business side of esports because they feel like it's very slimy at times and very cold because like Milo said, it's all about the numbers. It's all about the metrics and um, that's all they see, right? But then what are the results of those numbers and metrics being put into good use? What is the impact that it has on the community? How can it be used to grow um, the industry as a whole or grow a very specific game and and their community that's what i would like to see more is taking the business side of things and showing the direct impact of what actually happens and seeing how that can help improve the industry overall in a way that people like can just be like oh this makes a lot of sense and now I get it. I get why this is all important and this is way more interesting and I get to hear the stories and the hard work that people put into esports to make it what it is today and what it will be in the future. Perfect. Perfect. You know, did you guys have any thoughts you guys wanted to express here before we start to wrap up here? Was there was there something you guys wanted to to get out about the state of the industry right now? I think professional players need to start working more on their personal brands. I think everyone working in the industry um, or that wants, that wants to work in the industry needs to start working on their personal brands because we are living in a COVID world right now where everything is online, right? We're not going to TwitchCon. We're not going to PAX. Uh, we're not going to any conventions anytime soon. And so the way you used to network around the industry isn't available to us anymore. And not even, you know, COVID aside, more and more people want to work in esports, want to get into the industry, whether they know exactly what they want to do or not. Uh, I spoke to middle schoolers and high schoolers, and they want to work in this industry because they're passionate and it seems really fun. So I know that there's going to be soon a huge wave of others who want to work in the industry. And it's like, how do you choose the best person for the job? You know, when it comes on the working side, you got to really build your personal brand so people know what you're positioned as, what you're trying to do in the industry, how can you help businesses, and how can you help make an impact um, the way you want to. When it comes to the player side, I mean, dang, if you're not really doing anything right now because there is no live tournaments or the tournament circuit is super slow, then yeah, please start streaming more, start putting out more content, engage with your community, engage with your fans and build your personal brand because that makes you even more valuable to the organizations that you're a part of. And it, even if the organizations, you know, I think may not survive maybe long-term, at least when it dissolves, um, you know, hopefully not. But if that is the case, then people will know who you are and you'll be picked up a lot easier. So kind of like, I think 2020 and 2021 moving forward is going to be the year of the personal brand where you really have to step out of your comfort zone and position yourself well so people know who you are. I guess to sort of jump on that point, 
not about the personal branding, but just about the the middle schoolers and high schoolers that maybe listening to this and thinking, wow, I want to work in esports. Just realize that it's not all fun and games all the time. It's a lot of hard work. It's um, it's definitely a passion industry still. You're not going to be paid the same amount that you might be paid in another industry for similar work. Um, you know, it's not going to be something where you're going to be like, okay, cool, I'm going to go to college for this and I'm going to come out and I'm going to be making 60000 a year. No, probably not. You're, you might be making, you know, you, know, you might be making enough to pay your bills if you're lucky at first. It's going to take a long time to, to get to a point where you feel like the work that you put in is the work that you're being paid for um, and uh, just kind of temper your expectations a little bit. Esports degrees, in my full opinion, are useless. We're not <laughs> ready for something like that. So this being a passion-driven industry right now, and this is something that I, you know, I, I told you know high schoolers and middle schoolers a lot, a lot more gently. But you can't teach an entrepreneurial mindset. You have to experience it, and you have to, you have to keep working on it. And that's what esports is. So these degrees, they they don't make sense because everything that I learned to become an industry expert. I learned purely on my own and through trial and error. Like I learned, and then, you know, the basic skills that, you know, I can put on a resume is I learned event organization, money handling, food handling, communication, finance. I, I became a master at Excel. I became a master at PowerPoint, all because esports was, again, the strategy, not the identity. So don't fall into the trap of like esports scholar or no scholarships are true. Don't fall into um, esports degrees. Set up those safety nets. I'm an engineer. Probably never going to use it, but you know, I, I'm an I have an engineering degree. If you know, I ever leave this industry. Yeah, one quick thing: if you if you really just do need a major to work in esports, just go to a business major. I think just learning business in general is going to help you out. Uh, just understanding because everything in this world is around business. It really is. Again, guys, thank you so much for joining us. Milo, where can we find you on the interwebs? You can just find me at Quia Milo or at 8-Bit underscore esports, because unfortunately, esports did become my identity. (laughs) 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 How about you, Peter? Where Where can we find you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter. That's probably the easiest place. So um, at Xenos King, or if you want to go look at more my educational content, then at Hansei GG, uh, you can find it on YouTube and uh, all the other places. So if you find me, you'll find the other stuff. I promise you. Dustin, uh, you can find me on Twitter at Get Steinard, uh, and you can read my work on esportstalk.com. Awesome. I'll make sure to link that as well. Again, guys, thank you so much for joining us here on Land Parties uh, and sitting down for the conversation, dude. We, we really appreciate it. Uh, Lucas, what is going on, my man? What do you got going on this weekend, my friend? Not much. Uh, a little gaming. Most of it's a little work around the house. So not exciting. I can't spend my weekend gaming like I want to, but that's OK. Right. What are you up to this weekend? About the same. I'll be I'll be gaming a little bit. I'm just ready for I'm I'm ready for the PS5 to drop. I'm ready for it. I need it to be November twelfth uh, already. Okay. Um, <laughs> other than that, though, probably just chill out this weekend. Maybe uh, maybe do I'm probably gonna do some yard work as well. We're looking to uh, replant our grass, so that should be exciting. <laughs> anyway, we hope you guys have more of an exciting week and weekend. Thank you guys again so much for listening. We appreciate it, and you know what it is. We love your faces. The wait is finally over. Football is back. You might not be at a game this year, but you can still be in on the action at betonline.ag. BetOnline is going the extra mile to make sure you can get in on every possible chance to win this season. From game spreads and totals to team, player, and coaching props, BetOnline gives you more options to wager than anywhere else. You can get in on the season opening bonuses today and start off wagering on wins, division, and championship futures all day, every day. 
Head to Bet Online today and take advantage of all the great sign-up bonuses. Don't forget to use their promo code BLUEWIRE at betonline.ag. That's BLUEWIRE, all one word. Bet Online, your online sportsbook experts.